This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there and thank you for downloading this Eye on Education podcast from the 12th of May. And this week we had three hot topics. We focused on the role of animals in education. That was with Carolyn Thompson, the founder of Reading Dogs. Also, we spoke to Teresa Panash-Yeya, who is a school counsellor who owns a therapy dog at the Royal Grammar School at Guildford, Dubai. We also discussed the changing faces of exam assessments with Lisa Grace Wilson from Teach Middle East. And as the Dubai Esports and Games Festival announce an education through gaming initiative for the summer, we asked esports expert Philip Ride whether gaming can ever really be educational. Plus, we cleaned up any confusion that you might have about how Eid al-Adha is likely to impact the end of the summer term. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Welcome back to the Agenda, but importantly, welcome back to your edition of Eye on Education. It is our special show where we peek inside the school gates, we peek inside nursery gates, we speak inside university gates to find out uh, what is going on on in the world of learning. It's all sponsored by Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai. And today we're going to be looking at two hot topics. One of them is the role of animals in education and the other is the changing face of assessments. I want to know whether your school has a pet Now, this all stems from the fact that my children came home uh, last week. Normally, I cannot prize a single piece of information out of them about how their school day was. Uh, But this this week, they had a dog visiting. Um, I think he's a therapy dog, actually, which is intriguing. Uh, But yes, he was a golden retriever. He was very friendly, apparently. uh, And there was all sorts of other pieces of information that I learned about him. So clearly, they had enjoyed his presence in the school. And it got us thinking about whether or not other people's schools might have pets as well. This this theory was consolidated by producer Jennifer Crichton, who immediately chipped in with a a cornucopia of animals that live (laughs) in her son's school. Uh, Jen, thanks for joining me in the studio, ostensibly to do the the headlines. But first up, let's find out what pets does your your son's school have? It's amazing. They've got so many. So Poppy the dog comes in quite regularly. We've also got Darwin the giant tortoise, who my son is obsessed with. Great name. Brilliant name. Perfect name. Every time we visit, we get to go and and give salad to Darwin, who sort of stares very grumpily at you while he chews on cabbage leaves. Did you know that these big tortoises, all this, oh, they don't move very fast. Nonsense. They're fast. Yeah, nonsense. Oh, yeah. If Darwin doesn't want to hang about, he'll he'll get away pretty quickly. But my son's school also has a sort of biodome full of animals. So they've got everything from tarantulas, which is an interesting one, um, snakes, birds, Sugar gliders, terrapins, fish. Oh my. Wow, really? Loads. Yeah. In yeah, a few yeah. minutes, I'm going to tell you all about my stick insect story. But first, <laughs> we're going to talk about exams. Uh, because we are now just days away from the start of the GCSE and A-level season. Uh, something that still tri- strikes fear into into literally the core of my heart. Thinking about those A-level exams, I really feel for the students heading towards those. Uh, so how soon is it starting? It's on Monday. Really? First exam yes. on Monday? 
first exams. May. Is that how early May they start? May 15th. I know. I, I had to double check yeah. that when I saw that this morning. It seemed very early. I seem to remember them being sort of very close to the summer holidays. I thought June at the least. But But I I guess they're very spread out, right? Yes, that's that's right. The programme begins tomorrow, uh, on Monday rather, so start of next week, Monday 15th of May. And it's the first set of exams to return to pre-pandemic procedures since 2020. So it may be that they're, they're kind of spreading them out a bit more, I'm not sure. But certainly it is kicking off on Monday and that is the British system of exams. So that's GCSEs, AS levels and A levels. But they're not the only exams that are going on at the moment. We've got kids in the IB system are sitting exams and then further down the age bracket, the primary kids are undergoing GL testing in a lot of cases. Yeah, and we've my also boys got, those, got that. Yeah. I mean, I'm not nervous about it, but some of the parents have asked for extra tuition so that they can train themselves up for them, even at like eight, nine. Well, my son's nine and we've had revision packs and stuff coming home in his in his. It seems backpack. bizarre, doesn't it, at that age for them to be revising? Mm-hmm. I don't remember revising at that age at all. No, well, we'll talk about the style of assessments a little bit later in the show. But every time we get to this exam season, you know, there's a big question mark as to how, why, what, whether, all of those questions when it comes to exams and younger kids. That's it. And then we've also got, of course, the secondary admissions exams, which is something that you or I probably didn't necessarily have to go through, but which is very standard here as well. So there's a lot of different testing going on. And as you say, we're going to be speaking to some experts in the next hour or so about those exams and how they're changing. And and as you say, how they affect our children and how we can support them with it. Cool. Now tell me a little bit more about this new rating system for cultural education that's been unveiled in Abu Dhabi. So this is called the National Identity Mark and it focuses on schools' efforts to boost pupil understanding and appreciation of the UAE's culture and traditions. Now it's aimed specifically at the national education of Emirati pupils. So it's operating separately to the overarching inspection system but it's a similar approach in that schools that come under this umbrella will be ranked as outstanding, good, acceptable or weak. And it's the first of its kind initiative in the UAE as part of an ADEC attempt to improve transparency across the capital schools. So it's primarily just to make sure that regardless of what system they're learning in, Emirati pupils are getting a good enough education in the cultural history of the country and that it's not being forgotten if they're in other curriculums other than the the Arabic and Islamic one. Fair enough, right. Two of Dubai's oldest schools, both of which were attended by royalty, no less, are going to be reopening in autumn next year. When did they close? They closed in 2020. So this is Rashid School for Boys and Latifa School for Girls. Latifa School for Girls was opened in 1982, so it's 40 years old. Rashid School for Boys is just a couple of years older, I believe. Both of them are in Nadal Sheba. And they were closed in 2020 for update. Now, of course, we had the the pandemic, things have been slow going, so construction is getting underway now this autumn and a phased return of pupils will start 12 months later. So it's going to start at foundation and primary level and gradually increase the school role again from next autumn. Now, Sheikh Hamdan bin Mohammed, the Crown Prince of Dubai, is a former pupil of Rashid's school, which was originally a secondary but opened an elementary section in 2003. And Sheikh Manal bin Mohammed, the President 
president of the UAE Gender Balance Council, graduated from Latifa School, which opened 40 years ago. So that school offers both British and Islamic and Arabic curriculum teaching. So both of those are quite well-established and well-renowned schools locally, I would say. So it's good news that they're both to reopen soon. Now, this is an intriguing topic and one where I'm going to have to come out and admit my true (laughs) feelings about it. Uh, Okay, so if you're struggling to get your kids to really engage with learning, there is a new initiative that's being introduced in Dubai, but it involves gaming, which for me comes with a massive question mark. I mean... I'm going to be honest, having spent the past couple of weeks trying to get my son to engage with revision material using Minecraft might have been easier, let's say. But but apparently the Minecraft Education Challenge, which is what we're talking about here, is actually a really good way to engage kids with STEM education. Now, of course, that's science, technology, engineering and maths. And this initiative is aimed at promoting gaming and esports as a viable educational tool in that STEM arena. So it's part of the Education Through Gaming initiative, and it's a joint initiative with Dubai Festivals and Retail Establishment and the Dubai Esports and Games Festival. And it will see pupils aged seven and above compete in three-person teams to reach a final, which will take place at the Dubai Exhibition Centre in Expo City in June. And it is involving Minecraft. I'm not sure exactly what they're going to be doing with Minecraft. My son seems to spend a lot of time trying to ride llamas when he plays Minecraft. I assume there's a bit more to it than that. Mine kill sheep. Yep. Huge numbers of sheep. They kill them. And then they, I don't know what they do then. Arthur also seems to like building train tracks that don't seem to go anywhere. Interesting. It's interesting how they, but they all sort of have their own little styles. We're going to find out a little bit more about how it can be used to actually educate our children. <laughs> uh, and I'm afraid Philip Ride, who's coming in now, he knows that I'm viewing this subject with a very sceptical eye. Uh, but he's prepped and ready. He's the author of Watch Us Play, which is a practical guide to managing your children's game time and improving their math skills. So he's very well placed to have the conversation slash argument with me. <laughs> and so... We will be doing that later. Okay, just a couple more stories. Actually, just one more story because a new executive education programme for healthcare professionals has been launched in the UAE. So a bit of adult learning here. Adult learning, that's right. So Dubai Academic Health Corporation, or the DAHC, is launching the Emirates' first academic health system after signing an MOU with Oxford University's SAID Business School. Now, this is aimed at enhancing healthcare leadership in the UAE. It's hoped that it'll help attract medical staff as well as clinical educators, administrators and scientists to the UAE. Fantastic stuff. Right. Well, thank you very much for that roundup of all the top education stories that have been crossing our desk over the last few days. As I said, up next, we are going to be talking about the role of animals in education. We're going to start with a very simple question. Does your school have a pet? If it, if they do, what is it? What's its name? Do you think it actually helps your child with learning? I'd be really interested to hear from you. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. We are in the midst of our special Eye on Education programme, which does exactly what it says on the tin. Uh, we take a look at all of the learning opportunities, all of the learning establishments right here in the UAE. And our top uh, topic 
today, our top topic this week, in fact, is the role of animals in the school environment. And this all stemmed from the fact that uh, my children told me all about a dog that had come to visit their school for a week. Now, that might not sound unusual. Most people's children, I think, probably do talk a little bit about their school day. But mine don't. I never know, basically, what they've done at school. I, I don't know whether it's boys or whether it's because they're distracted by the time I do pick up. But I find it impossible to prize any information out of them. So when they, heard, you know, when they told me all about this dog, I was a bit like, my goodness, it's really had a big impact on them. And that got me thinking about, you know, how many other schools have pets, what role those pets uh, provide, you know, whether or not they're actually, well, they're lovely to have, whether or not they actually have an impact on their learning. And, you know, the type of pets that you get. And we just heard from Jen that they've got a whole menagerie at her son's school. Um, So I just sort of thought it'd be quite interesting to find out how many other schools have pets and what they're called and what they're there for. Uh, So we got in touch with the team from the Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai, to find out whether or not they have pets. And I'm very pleased to say that I'm joined now on the line by Teresa Panash-Yea. She is the school counsellor at the Royal Grammar School Dubai. She joins me on Teams. Teresa, how are you? Hello, good morning. Thank you for having me on. I'm very well, thank you. It's so good to have you join us. And when I got in touch, the first thing that I got sent in response was a picture of a golden retriever wearing a hat. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. That was our Luna, our school therapy dog. Okay, so um, it was was to celebrate the coronation. So it was from last week, but and and the dog looked very cheerful to be wearing said hat. Okay, so who is Luna and, and, and does she live in your school or is she just a visitor? So Aluna is a golden retriever. She's five years old. Uh, she is also my family dog as well as therapy dog. Um, she was born in Europe, in Czech Republic, uh, where we lived at the time. And so she came to Dubai with us when we moved over about three years ago. Okay, so fair enough. You're the school counsellor. You've got a lovely dog. It makes sense that you would bring the dog into the school. But it but but it sounds nice and and that is nice but is there any sort of uh is there any facts are there any realities around mm. pets and and bringing them in you know is is there evidence that shows that that animals can you know genuinely make children and adults feel better yeah there actually is there is a huge body of research that has been done um and if you imagine the markers across the mental health and physical health uh Actually, all of them are showing quite significant improvements. So if you imagine mental health, um, petting a dog, a lot of the research was done in about, say, t- 10 or 12 minute long interactions with um, with the dog or any animal, to be honest. Um, and it, for example, shows increase in endorphin and dopamine uh, one interesting fact, also in phenylethylamine, which has a similar effect as um, eating a chocolate. <laughs> um, on the other hand, uh, quite significant decrease in cortisol, which is the stress hormone or blood pressure. Um, so, yeah, pretty much everything that constitutes what we understand well-being to be, um, presence of an animal is contributing it to it quite significantly. 
Well, and I have to say, we've been, we looked into some other statistics while we were researching this interview. And we found that 13% of children and adolescents aged 10 to 19 experience mental health issues. Now, that is according to the World Health Organization. And that study is from 2021. Now, I mean, obviously, I don't want you to reveal anything about your pupils or your patients. <laughs> but do you feel that there is a need for therapy dogs in, in schools? And, and would you recommend it as, as to, to other establishments? Um, I am not sure if we could say that, you know, there is a need for a therapy dog in every single school. Um, and we would hope that as professionals, you know, we are doing an amazing job in terms of taking care of well-being of our students. However, um, based on research and also based on our experience, we can see that having somebody like a therapy dog in, in the school is just contributing huge amount and on so many levels. So why not add it to the mix? Indeed. And of course, well-being is such a huge focus at the moment for uh, the Knowledge and Human Development Authority, which is the, the organisation, the KHDA, that manages Dubai's private schools. They've ranked this year schools according to their wellness criteria. And so they're clearly placing it uh, very high amongst their priorities. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, what type of it's one thing to say, you know, having the dog there, but what do you actually do if you've got a distressed mm. child? How do you mm -hmm. actually guide their interaction with the animal? Sure. So I have the dog with me in the office. She has got a huge bed here, which has been designed specifically for that purpose that some children, if you imagine a child having simply a bad day, um, being really sad about something, for example, uh, which is simply part of life. Sometimes this happen. They come and they can literally plong themselves on that huge fluffy bed next to our Luna. And I, I can tell you nearly every single time, if not every single time. The child is in a different state of mind within minutes, if not seconds. So that would be, you know, the, the first thing you could think of um, when, it, when it comes to like all the roles that she is playing he, here. And there are quite a few actually. So this would be something that your mind would go to first. Child is not happy. Sometimes they're not telling us why. Sometimes they cannot tell us why. And if I can have the animal on site and the animal can make the child feel better within five minutes, then I want to I want to do it. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And, do you know, it's so funny whenever I have these conversations with uh, teachers, uh, both, you know, privately and on the radio, they always ring true in my own life. So, for example, <laughs> my youngest can be quite prickly, quite tricky. And we adopted a cat from the beach. Some people might say we stole the cat from the beach, but he was very thin and he needed a home. And he's now called Waffle and he lives in our house and he is now fat um, and overfed and overindulged. But what's really interesting is within days, I found my youngest easier to manage. And it's because to a certain extent, this cat is very docile, but, but the cat gets held and forcibly stroked for a good hour each day, I would yeah, suggest. Yeah. And yeah. I think it genuinely has had an impact on him. And I'm not into airy-fairy stuff. Mm -hmm. Like I, I would say that evidence-based, I would suggest that this has had mm -hmm. a positive impact on him. Absolutely. Or if you, you know, if you imagine um, that we think that a child should see a counsellor, um, how do you 
you know, bridge the gap between, you know, the child struggling and actually seeing a professional, you know, even if even for adults, sometimes it's a daunting process. But if you say to a, say, six-year-old, oh, Johnny, would you like to see Luna for a minute? Do you think it would make you feel better? Then I have the child in my office very smoothly in a very organic way. And as they are petting the dog, they just organically, naturally start telling me what's going on in their life. So, yeah, that would be another kind of aspect that it would be useful for for people to imagine how 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 this happens and also i have to say i think she contributes to uh, to the whole culture in the school you know when people see her walking around and and of, of, seriously every child just smiles and and just cheers up for, you know for for that moment um and also we need to think about the staff sometimes you know um the academic year is is a tough year for for for, for our teachers so yeah it, she's here for them as well i love that idea of um luna being a bridging sort of exercise a bridging mm-hmm. a- mammal i can't think of a, mm-hmm. a bridging animal. yeah because oddly enough we find the sort of whole pet chat quite a good bridge to our grandparents uh, over in the United mm. Kingdom as well. You know, it's, it's it, you, you can't get your children to say, hi, how are you, granny and grandpa? But they'll say, hi, how scruffy, the dog. And, <laughs> and that leads into a, a lovely conversation. So it's really interesting to hear how, the, how pets can provide sort of different psychological roles. Teresa, it's been a great pleasure having you on the radio. Thank you so much for joining us here uh, on the Agenda programme. Lovely to have you with us on Ion Education. Uh, that You've been hearing the voice there of Teresa Panache-Yeya, the school counsellor at the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. I wish I had a chance. I I wish you could have brought Luna in to visit the agenda because I'm sure she would have cheered us all up here in Dubai as well. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Right, you are listening here to the agenda. This is Eye on Education. It is our special education programme. And I want to find out whether... Your school has a pet. We are discussing how animals in schools can help children learn on the show today. It's not apropos of nothing. Uh, So have you got one? Please get in touch. Uh, My boys are at a school out in Albasha. They don't have a pet, but they had a visiting dog for a week. Meanwhile, uh, producer Jennifer Crichton's school has got everything from a tarantula to a fish tank to everything in between, as far as I can tell. I'm surprised they don't have a llama, um, but they have a complete menagerie out there. Does your school have a pet? What is its name? Well, if they don't and they're interested, one organisation that can help provide a dog on a temporary basis is the Reading Dogs Company. They do exactly what they say on the tin. They bring dogs into schools to encourage children to read. Well, sounds lovely, but is there any evidence that it actually helps pupils learn? Earlier, I caught up with the founder of Reading Dogs, Carolyn Thompson, and I asked her that exact question. There's actually quite a lot of research behind it. There's a number of key studies that have been carried out in the US, and what they've found is having a dog in school delivering reading sessions has shown a 12 to 30% improvement in children's reading fluency and literacy but outside of that what they also found that there was a whole host of social and emotional benefits to it as well so interacting with the dog stroking a dog releases feel-good hormones so oxytocin so you've got the benefits of children feeling good about it and then they enjoy the reading session better but also in terms of social benefits 
it builds their confidence. They're learning to take turns, listen to others that are reading in the class. So yeah, a huge amount of research and there's more coming out of the UK at the moment. So looking forward to what they find. How do your sessions actually work? So we've got 22 dogs in total, all different sizes, breeds, backgrounds. So it's not a case of there's a breed that's better for this type of work or there's a dog that's better. It's very much about the dog's personality and traits and confidence, which is what we assess them and train them on. They are all very different with very different characteristics. And we make sure that we match the dog with the children that they're going to meet. So one of the things that we do is work with the school ahead of time to understand what their learning objective is from it and understand a bit more about the children that the dog will be meeting and then match that dog to to the students. In terms of the session, it's around about 30 minutes. So what we do is we start with an introduction, introduce the handler, introduce the dog, ask the children if they have any questions. They usually want to know how old the dog is and what his favourite food is. But we we have other questions that come up as well. We then talk about safely interacting with not only the dog that's there, but any dog. So start by just talking about who has a dog, who um, has been around dogs. Is anyone nervous with dogs? We'll talk about body language, so how to know if a dog's friendly to approach, how to know if it's not, asking the owner first before you approach it. And then just about soft hands when touching a dog, avoiding areas that they might not want to be touched in. And then we move into the reading session. And that very much varies from school to school and session to session. So it might be with younger children, we actually do the reading, but then we ask them questions about the text. With the older children, they do the reading. So they are reading to the dog. With some of our SEN groups, it might be more based around practicing vocabulary and practicing words and sounds. So it, it very much varies in terms of the objectives that the school set. And then we finish with the best bit, which is the interaction with the dog. So each child gets time to uh, come up, stroke the dog, get to do some tricks, um, you know, give it a hug, anything that they, they want to do. Culturally, Dogs aren't necessarily as included in society in in quite the same way as, for example, in Europe. I know in the United Kingdom, for example, many, many families have pet dogs. Have you noticed any sort of cultural differences out here? Do you have to be quite sensitive to those? Yeah, it's it's really interesting. That was one of the things that I thought would be um, a sticking point when we set up the the company. but actually, it w- it's been very well received. And I think a lot of that has to do with the research behind it. You know, it's not just a fad. There is a reason the school's doing it and making sure parents are as informed as possible. So sending out all the information very early on. We do a lot of parents' presentations. So we invite them along, tell them what's going to happen, even bring a dog along so they can meet it. What's been really interesting is a number of parents that have come to those sessions are ones who have no experience of dogs or are scared themselves. So they want to see it firsthand. But we are also very aware of where we are. So we don't tend to deliver sessions during the holy month. Um, We always make sure all the parents are happy with everything. We have little stickers that we can put on students if their family don't want them to touch the dog so that our handlers, our handler knows, but we don't always tell the students what that sticker is. It 
depends on on their age but yeah it's just very much working with the school and working with their parent group to to make sure we're always respectful and so I mean this is probably one of the questions the children ask you as well where do the dogs live do they all live with you in kennels or do they have their own homes Oh, no, I wish they all lived with me. I would never get away with that. Um, They actually all live in homes. So the dogs are, the dog and the handler are a team. So the handler is the owner of the dog. And what they've done is is felt that the dog would make a good school dog, um, brought them along for an assessment day. If we feel having assessed the dog that it could make a good reading dog, a school dog, the handler then goes into training. So the owner goes into training. Once they've passed their training, then the owner and the dog go into training um, and then they start delivering sessions in schools. So dogs are brought up in homes. Most of them are brought up in busy homes with children, with noise, with families. So they're used to that um, background. Actually, a lot of our um, handlers are either school teachers or dog trainers um so there um, because we have that um team of handler and dog they can read the behavior very well they know their dog very well so if it if the dog is ever in, uncomfortable in a situation or just a bit tired they can pick up those cues very easily which of your dogs are the most popular or, or the most experienced or have a particular character that you'd like to tell me about they're all so different. I think Ginger is a little street dog that was found in Portugal. Um, her owner, Mena, is a dog trainer. So she has so many tricks. So the children love that, getting to see all the different tricks at the end of the session. Uh, we have two dogs who are happiness dogs. So Millie and Tiger Lily particularly work in special educational needs centres. So the likes of Rashid Centre, the Developing Child Centre, if we're going into hospitals, they're very calm, very empathetic dogs. They seem to be able to read children very well and what they need at any particular moment. You've mentioned there that you've um, that you're taking dogs into hospitals now, and actually, I have experience of that. When my youngest was in hospital for a time, on one of the days, a dog was brought in. Then, and I mean, it didn't just lift the mood because it was something different. You know, I really did get a sense that that he loved petting the dog and, and seemed calmer afterwards. Is that the sort of driving force between the behind the project? Yeah, most definitely. Uh, it goes back to just the fun element and the the oxytocin so the feel-good hormones it it's a very tough time often for children that are in hospitals and the parents as well and it's just a nice break for them to have something to look forward to and something to break up their stay so we piloted the scheme at Aljalila Children's Hospital uh, working with actually their outpatients so mostly children that were coming in for physiotherapy and other types of therapy and worked really well so we're hoping that we can start um, delivering it in more hospitals in the UAE soon. That's Carolyn Thompson, who is the founder of Reading Dogs and also the Animal Agency, giving us the lowdown of exactly how animals can help in the educational environment. They actually can help children learn. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Welcome back to Eye on Education and welcome to your weekend if you are a teacher 
teacher or a child because your school has now closed for the day. Uh, But we are going to anticipate exam season because it is now fast approaching. Apparently, and, and extraordinarily to me, the first exams actually kick off on Monday, which seems crazily early. What's that? The 14th of May or something like that? Um, if you've got exams coming up, I can't believe you're already having to prep for them. I know it's a period of extreme stress for children of all ages. And of course, this is the first set of exams to return to pre-pandemic procedures since 2020. So that is what's so interesting about it, is that we've seen a couple of years where basically children didn't take exams like their GCSEs or their A-levels or their international baccalaureates because ultimately they couldn't go into the exam halls and and set them en masse. And, you know, the teachers and the exam boards couldn't be sure that children taking them at home weren't cheating, ultimately. Uh, And so as a consequence, all of the results were analysed and decided through coursework and also through I mean, ultimately, the teachers decided what grades you should get. And I think that's raised a really interesting question as to the best way to assess children, the best way to assess pupils at whatever age they are. And I know that there's a lot of research being done. There's a lot of uh, different styles of assessments being considered. So, for example, there's a big famous school here in Dubai. And I heard that last year, for example, they completely changed their assessment process, that instead of doing exams that you could prepare for, that you could cram for, essentially, that your parents could train you to get better at. They went for a much more democratic process, a totally different style of testing online um, that meant that you couldn't really prep for it and they, because they don't want to find out the children that have been cramming. They don't want to discover the children that have been taught how to do the exams. They genuinely want to judge a child's intelligence. So that just got us thinking about all the different ways in which you can assess children, all the different exams that you could have. And then if you throw in the curveball of chat GPT, which of course can now answer all your exam questions for you and write your essays, then, you know, the whole landscape of assessments and exams have become completely different. It's a knotty topic and one that we've decided to tease out with Lisa Grace Wilson, who is the editorial director of Teach Middle East magazine, a woman far more informed uh, and uh, informative about the this type of topic, because I have to admit, I don't even know the different styles of exams that come through. My um, everyone, All my friends are trying to teach me because we're getting to a sort of crunch point with my 10 year old. But Lisa, lovely to have you with us. Thank you very much indeed, as ever. Hi, Georgia. How are you? I am very well. It's lovely to have you with us. Can you tell me a little bit about the thinking that's going on around assessments at the moment? Since we've had the COVID pandemic, are more exam boards, are more professors leaning towards a a sort of of coursework rather than exams? So there's a lot of thinking going on right now because we're, we're now forced to think about how we we look at exams in schools. Um, There are some articles I read recently about schools that are going back to pen and paper exam um, because they're worried about children cheating, which, bad move, don't do that. I think the very nature of exams have to change. So we have to now look at how we're assessing students. 
we have to start thinking about do we want to be assessing students for memory recall or do we now want to really hone in on those critical thinking skills, those application of knowledge um, to real life scenarios? And I think a lot of the thinking is going in that direction. How do we get children to apply knowledge? Because with ChatGPT, as you mentioned, the knowledge is out there, it's free, um, you can access it, but ChatGPT isn't smart enough to do the human side of thing, which is thinking critically about what's out there as information. And so that's where we're headed. We're headed towards a more skills-based, critical thinking approach to assessment. And rightly so, it's, it's about time. And I suppose that is therefore more reflective of the skills that pupils are going to need in their adult life. You know, there's never going to be a time when you're going to have to list the kings and queens of, you know, of England, for example, off by heart or even the, the counties or the countries of the world because it, it's less than a second away if you just, you know, click on, click on the, the Google link. And so do you think that therefore that means a move more towards coursework or a move more towards exams or neither? No, I think it's a move more towards showing real life application of knowledge. So this could be project based. This could be problem based. Um, this could be students doing real world projects, entrepreneurial ventures. This could mean students showing how they would apply certain things in the real world. Um, this could mean more collaboration between school and industry. This could mean a re-look at how universities deal with matriculation. Um, so there's a lot at play because what's holding things back right now is how exams are structured. If there's a restructuring of external examinations, GCSEs, A-levels, etc., then we will start to see a reworking of how students are assessed within schools. Because you have to understand, even when teachers want to be creative with how they assess, if the external exams aren't in line, then they have to go in line with the external exams. It's, it's almost like the the tail that's wagging the education system. <laughs> but once that changes, once external examinations change, then, you know, school assessments will change. And I think we're going into more of an application phase. Because like you said, Georgia, we don't need to know all the, the, the facts. The facts are at our fingertips. What we need to be able to do is to utilise the facts and the content effectively. Now, what's really interesting at the moment is that Dubai's schools are filling up. And that means quite a lot of the secondary schools are introducing, if not exams, they are introducing assessment as to whether or not you can get into the school ultimately, whether or not you're clever enough, whether you're not, you can basically achieve that, that option. Now, there's various different types of assessments that they're doing. Do you think, first of all, it's appropriate for children to be tested around 10 to 11? And second of all, what type of assessments would you recommend schools should be using? Because I do know that some people are trying to cram their kids, you know, tutor their kids in order to get into these types of schools. And I also know that the schools are trying to prevent them by doing that, by changing the, the form of exams that they're doing, the changing the, the types of assessments. Number one, my kids are at that age, so my kids are 10. 
I don't think schools should be selective. So I'm just going to be a contrarian on that. I think schools should, if you are a good school, then you should be able to take a child and to move them along in their own learning journey to being their best selves. So if you are being selective, that means you're buying into this whole thing of making sure you have, quote, unquote, the best students so you have the best results, so you can get the best inspection results. And, you know, the cycle is endless. Schools shouldn't be. Now, what kind of tests should they give if they have to test? I think they should test the student's ability to learn, not their ability to regurgitate information. So give them scenarios and give them things that they should work on in a creative way. See how well a child is able to learn on their own and use that knowledge effectively. Don't give them recall um, tests. Don't give them um, a sheet full of mathematical questions that they have to recall formulas. Give them something that is creative enough to test whether or not they have the ability to learn and apply knowledge effectively. Interesting stuff. Thank you so much for your time. Lovely to have you on the radio again. Uh, That's Lisa Grace Wilson, Editorial Director of Teach Middle East magazine, raising a couple of very important and interesting points there, whether or not schools in seed should be assessing pupils at any stage uh, as to whether or not they're bright enough to come into their schools or indeed whether children should be able to learn uh, as a group and have their own personalised education within that classroom. This is I on education on the agenda with the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future ready young people now we're doing Eye on Education at the moment it is our special programme focusing on all of the topics that you would consider sort of education under the education umbrella and it's all in partnership with the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai and I came across this topic yesterday and I knew that my children and pretty much everyone else's children would love it because the team at the Dubai Esports and Games Festival you know where I'm going here now don't you are launching an education through gaming initiative this summer now the idea behind it is to connect to engage pupils across a range of educationally important topics and they're using this system or this program which is called the Minecraft Education Challenge. And what's so funny is that as I say that you can tell that I'm quite new to those words but everyone else who's involved in gaming in any way at all knows exactly what it is and the general gist is that children over seven years old are going to be allowed to get involved and the the principle is it's education through gaming. It takes place at the Dubai Exhibition Centre at Expo from the 21st until the 25th of June. It sounds good in principle, but as I've mentioned on the show a few times, I'm not necessarily, I'm not sold. I'm not going to sort of sugarcoat it. I'm not really sold on video games being educational. But uh, joining me now to express a slightly different view is Philip Bride. He's author of Watch Us Play, which is a practical guide to managing children's game time and also shows you how to improve their math skills while playing games. He spent 20 years working in the video game industry. He's worked for global game publishers like EA Sports and Disney. So he's definitely from the sector. But what's so interesting about Philip, who's in the studio with me now, but I'm still talking, I haven't let him settle it yet, is that we met in Saudi at the esports event and he definitely changed, you definitely changed my perspective on how much I allow my children to play games. And, and, and Philip had a real effect on the way we manage gaming in our household. So it's really interesting that we can have this conversation again. So yes, big preamble. Welcome, Philip. <laughs> 
Thank you, Georgia. Great to be great to be here and great to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you on. And and since that that event that we did about I suppose eight months ago now, my children have been allowed to have a Nintendo Switch. So we do now have a computer game system in the house. Um, and that was one of the reasons for that was because you suggested that in your view, and you gave me some good research backing it up, in your view, it's better for children to play games than to passively watch television. Would you still stand by that? Absolutely. You know, that active versus passive conversation when you're playing video games you're involved in making decisions. Okay, am I going to collect this thing? Am I going to do this quest? You know, what are my options? Do I have options in dialogue and I need to choose what to say next? All of those things support developing as an individual. Watching a passive medium like TV or a film, it's like, okay, well, great, you can take some of it in and you understand what's going on, but is it developing you in the right way? You know, being involved and playing games gives you that opportunity you can choose a variety of different games you can have different experiences you know talking from my own experience i sit with my partner and we play Fortnite together shared experience okay we also play with a nephew but then on the other side i sit and play with my mother-in-law and we play candy crush which is a puzzle game so it's about the different types of experiences that you can also have because it's an active medium Okay, so against that background, we have this new event coming up at the end of June, obviously a time when it is super hot outdoors and there's not much for the children can do. Um, It's called the Minecraft Education Challenge. They're doing this big initiative at the Dubai Exhibition Centre at Expo. What is the Minecraft Education Challenge? Let's start with that. So the Minecraft Education Challenge is a challenge for younger students. There's actually couple of activities for secondary students as well that sit under the umbrella for the festival and for the minecraft it's about working together in teams to collect uh, sort of find and collect falcon eggs so there's a world that's been created it's influenced by dubai and it builds on the competition that we had last year which was digging treasure on a pirate island so i had the, the privilege of operating that for the festival and so we've you know that's been built on this year to say okay how can we make it more dubai focused so the world that players will go into has changed slightly concept is still the same collaborating you know critical thinking all those things that we think about from an education perspective and so they then have to work through this scenario of okay can i find the things that i'm looking for which are falcon's eggs and do it in the quickest time possible so it says it's a race it's you know about how do you work together have your communication skills, have your problem-solving skills, work against the clock, and then be in with a chance of winning because you've been able to get the fastest time. Okay, why is it educational? If we look at what schools are trying to do at the minute, part of it, and I know you've just had Lisa Grace on, who is a, you know, a great proponent for this, it's like education in some instances is about imparting knowledge. Okay, and it's about, right, what facts and figures do we know that are important? What methods do we understand? The other part of education is what skills do you need for life? Okay, and video games support that. You know, we've mentioned these students will be working in teams of three. Okay, so immediately there's a different dynamic involved. They have to consider the perspectives and opinions of their teammates. How do they work together? And in the same way that you may be doing a science project together in one lesson, Playing in a team for a game develops the same sorts of skills. The difference is that the game is more likely to engage the students because it's fun, it's exciting, it's what they spend their time doing. So gaming 
for developing skills and learning. Absolutely. I am a, a big fan. Okay, so looking at the other types of games that people could play to improve their, you know, their learning, for example, because I, I mean, I had to cave, ultimately, it came down to it, I had to cave, all of their friends had machines, and I was, it was becoming upsetting to them that they didn't have a computer system at home. You can even hear how old fashioned I am by the fact I call it a computer, and it's a games console, that's what it's called. Um, but if you, so if you cave, and they got the console, you can then choose, though, at least then you can choose which games they're allowed to play and how they play those games. Now, it takes a certain level of comprehension, which I still don't have. So I'm going to come to you as my expert. What games should they be playing that is actually, you know, not just in the teamwork, but if they're just doing it on their own at home? You know, if you're going to, you're going to put Super Mario Brothers or Zelda, I can't remember the others. Old school games, fantastic games. Those are the only ones I know. <laughs> Tetris. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. But it's a puzzle game. So it's great. Again, there's that thinking that's involved of, how do I solve this? What do I do? What, what, is, what is my thinking of, okay, I've got resources or I've got characters or I've got you know, a time limit. It's, it's the thinking that's involved in actually playing and working your way through a game experience. And yes, you know, there are 10, 12 different genres of games that you can look at playing. And some of them will focus on topics. Some of them will just be abstract. It's like, okay, go and save the galaxy. Great, okay, something that you can have fun doing. The learning and the skills often run as an undercurrent, and I think that's what a, a lot of people miss when they look at a game experience. We, we've spoken about the education side and working in teams, but if you're playing a single-player game, depending on the style of game, you may have 10, 12, 15 different things happening on the screen at the same time, which you've then got to interpret and make decisions on so that you can progress. That's the kind of fighter fighter pilot line, isn't it? That children are supposedly going to be great as fighter pilots because they're used to doing so much stuff on a screen and that's what a fighter pilot has to do. Absolutely, and there are examples in the industry where military forces around the world have looked at video gamers and gone, you've got the ability to process all of this information and make decisions. There's also recently been stories of you know, a video game player who has gone on into you know, a shipping yard where you've got all the shipping containers. That's Tetris in that, real life. Absolutely. <laughs> but that's the point is because they are used to that experience of having to, to manage and manipulate different inputs and, and stimuli at the same time, they're better at that type of role. I have to say, though, my style of playing Tetris is high stakes. So I don't know whether that would work in, in real life. Like I like to wait and build a lot on the left and then wait for the long sticks to come in. And then you have to really quickly turn them vertically so they go down the side because that's how you get the best points. I think in, a, in an actual shipping yard, they might find that a little tense. So maybe, maybe, maybe sort of direct transition in that situation. Okay, so you've written this fantastic book about um, Watch Us Play. It's sort of a guide to improving their maths through games. What type of games would you recommend specifically for, for, for maths? Anything that has uh, points and level systems in it. So that's part of the... In the book, I write about a framework. It's called a Parrot Framework. And it identifies key features inside games that you can use to then turn into maths questions. So if you are playing a game and you have a character that you play as and you go and do a quest and you earn some experience points and you level up and then you may get better items or you get stronger or you, your ability to run faster, that whole process 
gives you something that you can build maths questions around. Ah, so, so it's about playing alongside them as well. So the, you, you recommend that partnership, I suppose. I have to say that my kids are at their happiest when they're playing FIFA with their dad on the computer game. Uh, so maybe it is time for me to learn how to use the machine. Although the last time I played, it was like it was a fighting game and I couldn't even look up. Like I couldn't work out how to look up and walk forward. So eventually just everyone came and stabbed me so that I was out of my, you know, put me out of my misery because I couldn't move. But that's great because it's a starting point. And what it actually does is it helps you to build the relationship with your child because you're getting involved in their world. Yeah, they found it uniquely amusing. (laughs) Absolutely. So I play with my nephew and he just laughs at me because, yes, I'm not very good at the games that he wants to play. But the fact that we've got that shared experience, we start to build an understanding over time. I may get better, but I may not. But it's something that we can then have a conversation about away from the game. And I can ask, you know, how's he getting on? What progress is he making? And it shows that I have an interest. That is an important thing because it actually plays into other areas of the overall relationship that we have with children. So, Philip, thank you very much for joining me in this very public journey that I am taking from hating all forms of games to maybe coming round to them as a concept. And I imagine there's lots of other parents listening to this right now who are going through exactly the same scenario because I think there's a huge umbrella of guilt over every time you let your child go on a screen. Uh, But if we can be persuaded or encouraged into seeing the learning benefits and learning opportunities with the screens then maybe there'll be less of a sort of butting of heads in everybody's household so interesting stuff philip as ever fantastic to have you on on the program and uh, philip's book is called watch us play it's a practical guide to managing your children's game time and helping them improve their math skills as well and it's fabulous to have you on the radio thank you very much indeed philip ride there uh, if you missed the beginning of that interview we actually have broadcast it live on facebook uh, so you can check out the at dubai 1038 fm facebook page look at me knowing the social handle um, and you can check it out there and watch it in full and maybe show it to your partner and your friends if they're having a similar level of anxiety when it comes to letting your children play computer games. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Right, I've got a question for you. What are you doing this Eid al-Adha holiday? Have you made plans? I thought that I would be ready for the holiday by now. I would have thought that I'd have booked something. But actually, I haven't yet. And, and much is being made of the fact that if you take off one day of official annual leave, then you can get a full nine-day break. That's the theory, at least. Um, and so, obviously, it's a really good opportunity for anyone who, you know, he's governed by annual leave to get a decent holiday. But what does that mean for our children in schools? There's been a lot of conflicting reports recently. Uh, so we wanted to clear up any confusion. We know this is peak pickup time. So we've got lots of parents sitting in their cars right now wondering about these reports that came out that suggested uh, that potentially you could end up with this, this summer term ending during that Eid al-Adha holiday. Joining me now is producer Jennifer Crichton, who has been getting into the nitty-gritty of this topic. First up, Jen, let's start with the dates of the holiday. Yes, and it's list of public holiday dates for 2023. The UAE Cabinet allocated four days for Arafat Day and Eid al-Adha, which could mean a six-day break from Tuesday, June the 27th. But the date won't be confirmed until nearer the time by the UAE's 
Moon Sighting Committee. Now, private schools, that means, can only tentatively communicate the Eid al-Adha holiday to parents. They can only confirm the dates once they're declared by the UAE Government Authority. There was a suggestion in an inaccurate newspaper report last week that the school term would end during the Eid al-Adha holiday. Okay, so why did this newspaper get the just you know get the wrong end of the stick? Essentially, it's because for most schools, the end of term is really close to that Eid al-Adha break. But it doesn't mean that school will end during that holiday. In fact, the KHDA this week clarified that schools are under no obligation to end the term during the Eid al-Adha break and that those decisions can be made on a school-by-school basis. They did say the summer break will not start before June the 28th. Schools are allowed some flexibility in their calendar as long as they complete a certain number of days in the year. And in the current academic year, pupils must attend schools for 188 days. So while dates will and can vary from school to school, most terms at the moment appear to be planning to end on July the 7th. The KHDA website provides a list of schools and a link to each one's academic calendar. And parents are advised to contact their own individual school for a confirmation of those dates. It's just that, as you say, that the holidays falling so close to Eid al-Adha and the Eid al-Adha date still to be confirmed, there is a possibility that we'll have that Eid al-Adha break. The kids will then be back for not very long at all. Oh, but every day counts. I mean, can you imagine that extra week? It's five days, but that's five days that my husband and I have to go to work every single day. Yes. And that's five days in the heat that then I would have to try and find some way to entertain my child. So I'm like... They will be there to the bitter end. And my oh, yeah. goodness me, if school could continue another week, that would be an absolute blessing in this heat. So I don't know about you, but I'm like, <laughs> please don't make the holiday end in Eid al-Adha. Lovely oh. to have a break, but don't, you know, please continue to educate my children. Yes, that's it. And I mean, for me as well, I feel exactly the same way. If they were to turn around now and say... Oh, we're, we're closing a week earlier than oh, planned. I, would be so I think cross. I would actually weep. It would have a direct financial impact on me as well because the reality is is that th- there's nothing for them to do. I mean, yes, they can play, but they're two very active boys. So it just means that I would have to pay for another sports club. So I paid for the school term, which I thought was going to end on the 7th of July. And now you're making me pay <laughs> six to 800 dirhams to entertain them for that term, which I thought they were at school. So, And I've got two boys. Imagine if you had four. And you've got to pay oh, 600 to 800 dirhams. I struggle with one. The cost of, of camps and extracurriculars, they're so expensive. One child, I feel it. If yes. there's an extra week to be made up somewhere, I feel that. So I do not even want to know how families with four or can, five children manage. Uh, do you think I can use this as a platform to campaign for term <laughs> not to end till the please, 7th of July? Please Are you keep our children. to do that? Are we allowed to do that here on Ioni Education? <laughs> uh, uh, let's see whether um, people will text in and support <laughs> my view on this. How would you feel about term ending uh, a week early, effectively, or an ending during the Eid al-Adha holiday? Uh, or do you want your children to stick in there till the bitter end? Now, that, this does remind me of a slightly bitter, or, or, or maybe not that, maybe a quite sort of an engaged conversation. I don't want to say a bitter okay. argument, but it was an engaged conversation about whether or not it was appropriate for parents to take their children out of school early. There were two very distinct camps about that conversation. And I'm wondering whether there might be two distinct camps on this one as well.
And that's all from the Ion Education podcast for this week. Make sure you tune in every Friday from 11am to catch up on the latest education headlines.